Verse 18, Genesis 2. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to him. And the man said, whoa. <laughs> it's pretty much what he does say. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, and that is why. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is our text for today. You can be seated. So we've been in this book of Genesis, and we've seen that this book is not just a book about origins, but first and foremost, uh, this book is here to tell us about God, who God is, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And we've looked at this and we've seen through Genesis 1 and 2 that, we, that Genesis doesn't just start with one creation story, but with two creation stories. And they're both different. In, in the first creation story, God is depicted in, as a transcendent God who's so above and beyond this universe that he creates. He's holy, holy, holy as we just sung. He's the sovereign ruler of all things. This is why almost... Every Jewish prayer today begins uh, this way, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which in English is, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. And that's how the, the, the Jewish people approach God through prayer, and it has its roots in Genesis 1, because that's the God we see in Genesis 1. He's the King of the universe. He's the King who's unleashing his kingdom into the chaos. The tohu vevohu, the formlessness, the emptiness. And what comes out is just this most beautiful, harmonious, orderly work of God's hands, the universe. The second account in Genesis 2, God is not so much seen as way out there or above it all, but rather you have a God who draws near, who comes close and it's a God now with a name, his personal name, Yahweh. And this God now enters into his creation. He makes his home in the creation, in a garden. And here God is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's personal. He's intimate. He's close. In the first uh, creation account, the way the world came to be is God creates simply by speaking it. Sun, stars, galaxies, you go over here and Waters, you go over here, and land, you go over here. And it's by just the simple power of God's word that this universe came to be in all its glory. But the second account, it's rather than God speaking it, God now creates with his hands. 
And this account really focuses on the penultimate work of his hands, where his hands go into the mud, and like a potter with his clay, he fashions the human in his image. And then Yahweh breathes the very soul, his soul, into the clay, and it becomes a living thing. And I think from these two creation stories, too, we don't just learn about God, but we also learn about who we are. In the first creation account, we are creatures who are made in God's image, male and female, uh, according to God's kind. And we're, we're made just like kids who resemble their parents. Uh, we've been created by God to, to look like our Father in heaven, who's king. And because he's king, it means that we're kings, we're queens, which is why God gives us the vocation in the first creation account of ruling and subduing to have dominion, it's like God says, here are the keys to my universe. He entrusts it to us. And just think about all that has been entrusted to to us, uh, to you, the domains from our bodies, our homes, our families, our jobs, our work, our resources, our relationships. I mean, God put us in charge of this amazing world to steward it. And of course, to be kings and queens, uh, to rule as God rules. And, and then in the second creation account, uh, we find out that we're more than just kings and queens, but we're also priests. And a priest's vocation is to worship and it's to protect that place where God dwells. And in this first place of his dwelling is that garden. They're called to guard that garden. And if you want to know, like, okay, why are we in this book of Genesis? And why are we going to spend all of this time in this book? Well, I'll play one of my cards. I'm on a mission to protect the garden that God has entrusted to us, because right now we are the garden of God, and we are a nation of priests, and we are to be God's family Uh, who are protecting this place, protecting this garden, uh, to be holy as God is holy, set apart, uh, resembling him in this world, and priests who also protect this this precious thing called the church. And this is why more and more I'm just trying not to concern myself with the world and the world's beliefs and its politics and its lifestyles, Uh, My concern more and more is for this garden that we are actually God's kids who resemble our Father in heaven. Because here's the deal. If, If we lose our distinctiveness and become like the world around us, we have nothing to offer our world, nothing. This is why Jesus instructs his followers. He wants us to be fully in the world. He wants us to love the world and all its people but he doesn't want us to become of the world. Um, And that's what a priest is. So today we're going to look further at who we are. From Genesis 2, 18 to the end. And this text starts with this, I think it's a pretty huge declaration. It's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. Now if that's not stunning to you right now... uh, That just tells me I have some work to do because it's stunning. And then the next verse, verse 19, God uh, adds to Adam's vocation. 
he brings to Adam all the animals that he's created, and he tells Adam to, to name them. Now, to us, this sounds like just uh, a cute little assignment. You know, Adam's sitting there and names that a tiger, names that a lion, names that cobra, all that. Um, but in the ancient world, a name is much more than a label. A name is one's identity. It's who a person is. So to actually name something is an act of authority. It's attaching far more than a label. It's, it's literally declaring what it is. This is why Nebuchadnezzar, when he brings those Jewish exiles into his empire, what does he do? He renames them. And you probably don't even know who Hananiah and Mishael or Azariah are. Because we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Babylonian names of pagan gods. And Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are actually their Hebrew names, but what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's declaring authority over them. He's declaring who they are by giving them a new name, and with the new name comes a new identity, and one's identity is one's destiny. And if you remember throughout the first creation account, whatever God called something, it became whatever God called it to be. Over and over again, it said, and it was so. And it was so, and it was so. And look at verse 19. It says, and whatever the man called, that's the same word, every living creature, that was its name. And I say, wow. This means that not all living things are the same. Not all living things are equal. That God actually created an org chart and God put the human at the top of the org chart. The, the human is in charge. And we need to know that and we need to feel the weight of that so that we can be God's children who resemble our Father in heaven because He's entrusted so much to us. And then I, I, I think about how Adam is, is so much like God here. God in Genesis 1, God speaks, God speaks, and now Adam speaks, and we speak. Uh, we have language. We're, we're, we're a people who have been given reason and we can make sense of reality through words and language. And I don't know if we understand this all the time, but, but language is power. In fact, I think it's the, the, the greatest power that humans wield. It's the power of language. And we're going to see this later when we look at the Tower of Babel. But according to this guy named Saul Linsky, who wrote the book Rules for Radicals, he said, whoever controls the language has all the power. And I think he's right. And I think this is one of the things that's frightening about social media today. Through simple words, those simple words can cause anyone to believe almost anything about anything. And it can turn anyone or anything into a monster. I mean, today social media can ignite the masses into 
this massive groupthink. And this is how totalitarianism happens. And if you want to know, like, why we value Sunday morning, even though we say it's 10%, 90% of who we are is outside of a Sunday morning, it doesn't make the 10% any less valuable than the 90%. Uh, this 10% is incredibly important to us because of what we're even doing right now. It's, it's a place for us to sit under God's word because we need God's word. We were created by the word of God. We were redeemed by the word of God. This word is good. It's holy. As Moses said, it's our very life. And therefore, to keep us from just getting sucked into the drama and some of the hysteria in our wordy world today, we need to digest this word. Our thoughts need to be taken captive to it. Our lives and words need to reflect this word. God says, you do not live by bread alone, but you live by every word that proceeds from my mouth. If I can say something to the younger generation right now, I'd say stop living off the crumbs of your phone. You know how I know they're crumbs? Because when I watch you looking at it, I just see you constantly doing this. You're just swiping it away. Next, next crumb, next crumb. And that's for all of us. We have this book. God says, eat it, take it in, digest it. Now, going back to, to verse 18, the first verse of our text, when it says, it is not good for man to be alone, I want us to see who's saying this. This is not Adam speaking, looking at this reality and being like, God, I feel alone right now, help me. God's saying this. This is God's conclusion. God is looking at his creation, a creation that in Genesis 1, where God is regularly saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he's finished with it all, he says, it is very good. Now in this second creation account, God says, this something here is not good. Now, does this mean that God can actually make something that is not good? No, what God is telling us here is that his creation isn't complete. Because what God is doing with these words is he's setting us up for the climax. God is preparing us for the great curtain unveil, for the crowning achievement of his creation. And what is that going to be? The creation of woman. Boy, that was a great spot for the guys to say amen, but they blew it. <laughs> but when God says it's not good for man to be alone, uh, he, he, he's like basically saying to Adam, Adam, we're not done yet. <laughs> you just wait. As amazing as the rivers and the star and the mountains and the, and the sea and those creatures that fly above you and those, those creatures walking on the earth and even that garden where you and I make our home, you're not going to believe what's coming. In verses 19 to 20, that what we already looked at, uh, that sudden switch then uh, from God saying it's not good to be man alone to now God bringing the, the 
animals to Adam and Adam naming them, it almost like this feels totally unrelated. But what God is doing is he's showing Adam his need. And I think over time, as these animals are presented to, to Adam, he, he starts to be like, wait a second, there's a, a he and a she. There's a Mr. Cow and a Mrs. Cow. There's a Mr. Sheepdog. There's a Mrs. Sheepdog. And where's mine? <laughs> it reads that way. Look at it. And then verse 21. Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And it says from his rib, Adam, or Yahweh, formed the woman from the man. Now, I really hate to do this too much because I really want you to have great confidence in your English text, but the Bible was not written in our language. And so I just have to tell you, this word here is not rib. It's, it's not even really close to rib. Uh, it's, it means one clear thing. It's, it's from Adam's side. And why Adam's side? Uh, this is important because the fact that God created the woman uh, from the man, the Isha from the Ish, and, and that he did it from his side, it's, it's here to connote equality. She wasn't made from Adam's foot. She wasn't made from Adam's head. She's made from his side. To say that, that she is equal in every way, but yet she's not an, an Ish, she's an Isha, she's not a man, she's, she's a woman, she's unique, she's distinct, she's different from Adam. And this is why you have in verse 23, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of the Ish, the man. Equal, but different. This is really hard for our secular culture today. Our, our secular culture today doesn't even want to talk about differences. And I think it's because sameness is now our culture's definition of equality. Our, our, our culture has this need for all of us to be the same, which is why it insists on sameness. In fact, it seeks to diminish gender differences between a man and a woman and it wants us to actually believe that all gender differences are due to nurture and not to nature. These are just social developments. But that's not what our text is teaching us right now. But see, in, in, in our culture doing this, our, it, it's reduced both male and female to mean almost nothing. And then when you add the transitioning from one gender to another gender, which, in my opinion, is the ultimate act of rebellion against the creator, this does even more than just diminish gender differences. It, it literally produces chaos. And now we're right back into Genesis 1 and 2, into the tohu vevohu, into this formlessness and nothingness. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I, I brought up Samuel Beckett's play, The Endgame, which described, uh, is, is, is there to kind of describe the existential nothingness of our postmodern existence. And he does this through his two characters, 
clove and ham, who are both in this gray room. Uh, they just have two windows that they can look out. And, and outside the window is, is the new modern world, this wasteland of tohu vevohu. And if you remember, Ham asks, like, what do you see? To which Clove says, zero. <laughs> and he looks again and zero. Well, well, look at one more time, zero. And if I could add my part to them, to this story, uh, I'd have Ham asking, well, what about people? Do you see any people? Yes, lots of them. Any women? Zero. Oh, all men? No, zero. But you see people? Yeah, they're everywhere. But what do you see? <laughs> gray, gray, gray. Really? Gray? Yes, from person to person. Just gray. See, gray is the color of nothingness and emptiness. It's the color of the tohu vevohu. Gray is the color of chaos. It's what the enemy wants to do with God's good creation, starting with us, which we'll learn next week. And when I see our world moving towards this, I'm not surprised. Nor am I angry. I'm just sad. I hurt for our world. My heart has deep compassion. But here in God's garden, that tohu vevohu must not be. It must not enter. Whether it's these gender lies, the enemy's descent, deception. I mean, think about what we learned in, in Genesis 1, that, that when God creates, when he moves into the, the chaos, into that formless and empty tohu, vevohu, he does it by giving it form and function. And then when he gets to the sixth day, and he, he's, he's entering now the grand finale of his creation, when he creates the human, this creature according to his kind and his likeness, and he says, both male and female, I created them. What is he doing? He, he's bringing form and function. And part of the form and function is male. It's female. And in Genesis 1, male and female, they're created together. And they're both endowed by God with this form and function that is distinct from the other. Which means something pretty significant. Gender is God's idea. And even more than that, gender reflects God. Because God is a trinity. God within himself is this diversity of persons, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is unique, and yet each is equally God. And, and within this uh, community of persons... There's this profound interdependence and this mutual submission that, that defines the community of the Trinity so that we can say three persons, yet one God. And God makes us in his image, male and female. We are not the same. We are each unique. We're each equal. And yet we're interdependent where it takes both genders, male and female, to fully depict and reflect the image of God 
I find this to be awesome. And this is just Genesis 1. And then we come to Genesis 2 where now creation is slowing down and it's zooming in more into the grand finale, uh, God's creation of the human. And here now we see that God makes the man first. But when God's done making the man, God concludes something's not good. It's not complete. And so God, in verse 18, makes a helper suitable to Adam. Oh, now, a helper suitable, does that even excite you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I love it. Now what do I say to that? I'm going to go above and beyond that, okay? Because... Again, have confidence in your English language, but again, it just, the, our English does not get close to, to what helper means here and suitable. Uh, I'll start with helper. In Hebrew, the word helper is the word uh, ezer. In fact, this word is most often used in our Bible in a military context. So ezer is oftentimes then in our Bible translated as warrior or rescuer and sometimes even savior which is why this word ezer is most often used of God. David, uh, for instance, uses it in Psalm 21. He says, uh, my eyes look to the hills for where does my help come from? There's that word ezer. My, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And what God is saying, or what David is saying about God here is that God, you're my ezer. You're you're not even just my helper. You're my warrior. You're my rescuer. You're my savior. And this is what God is making woman to be, an Ezer. Adam, I'll make a warrior, a rescuer, a savior who's suitable for you. And I can say this, I'm married to one. And I know every guy here who's married can say amen to this, uh, that, that women are Ezers. You know, my, my eyes can look to the mountains and, and I can first say about God that, God, you are my help and he is my ultimate help. He's my ultimate rescue. He's my ultimate salvation. But my eyes also look up to my wife and I can honestly say she is my helper. She is my rescuer. She is my warrior. She is my small s savior. God says, I'm going to make an Ezer, but not just an Ezer for you, Adam. I'm going to make an Ezer Kenedgo. Kenedgo is the word for suitable, and Kenedgo has a very interesting meaning. Kenedgo means a not me. So woman to man is a not me. I'm not that. Uh, or maybe another way to put it, uh, she is the yang to his yang. Or like a flowing river needs banks. Think about it. Because a river, a flowing river without banks, it would be just a marsh or a swamp. But it's the beauty and the strength of its banks that make that water flow and provide that river its direction and its power. That's the meaning of 
And this is what God made from Adam's side, this warrior rescuer who's equal in value but distinct in a role. And the text says God brought this woman to the man. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes, but I'm very curious because this is a story. Like, like, what do you see when you read something like that? And God brought her to the man. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is the one through whom the whole world's created. So when the text says, in Genesis 2, verse 7, that God formed the man whose hands went into the mud. <laughs> whose hands? When it says in our text today that the Lord brought the animals to Adam, who brought them to Adam? In Gen- the next chapter, when it says that the Lord came walking in the garden, who's this walking? And now when it says the Lord brought Eve to Adam, who is this? Anytime God shows up in the text with human attributes in human form, it's Christ. And this is the first wedding ceremony. And Christ is walking the woman down the aisle to the man. And when the man sees this woman coming towards him, as the Jewish commentators say, Adam is beside himself. He is ecstatic. He bursts out in song and just the first poetry. Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Or another way of putting it, this is my beloved. And my beloved is mine. And then in verse 24, you get the therefore. And therefore gives us the the logic and the design that's attached to marriage because marriage is not just some human idea or social construct. Marriage is God's idea. Christ designed marriage. And ask yourself, why? And why here? Well, he tells us why so that they may, they may leave their father and mother and become one flesh. That's why he made marriage. For oneness, just as God is this community of persons, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each a distinct person with distinct role, yet in this dance of interdependence, mutual submission, and ecstatic delight that we can say one God, Same with marriage. And so marriage is not something that that evolved. It's this sacred institution designed by God for oneness between a man and a woman, where a man and woman, they leave their families and they hold fast to each other. I like how the King James Version puts it. They leave their family so they can cleave to each other. And the word cleave here means to make a covenant. It's for a husband to say to his wife, or a man to say to a woman, or a woman to say to a man, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. And this oneness then, in this covenant, is more than just sexual. It's emotional oneness, it's relational oneness, it's spiritual oneness. It's this total life union of shared values, beliefs, shared dreams, a shared life mission 
Husband and wife are life partners. They're two best friends who do life together till death do they part. And that's why you can have verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Huh. And that's what marriage is. It's a place for us to be naked with no shame. Now to our world, nakedness is associated with eroticism, but in the Bible, nakedness is always the symbol of being found out. It's, it's the idea of being completely, completely known and yet still fully loved and accepted. And this is what every human heart longs for today. So we long for a place where we can be completely known, including all of our faults, all of our imperfections, where we can lay bare our fears, insecurities, our weaknesses, our hopes, our dreams, and still be loved and accepted. And this can really be only experienced fully in the context of a covenant where two people commit their lives to the other, a husband to a wife, with all that I am. And all that I am, I give myself to you. This is how creation ends. It's not just even the creation of human. It's not the creation of man and woman. Creation ends with marriage. And with the man and the woman becoming one. And what you have now is, is, is through marriage, these two image bearers, male and female, who covenant to live into this dance of mutual submission and interdependence of selfless love and adoration. In doing this, they are reflecting God, the glory of God, the triune dance of God. And it's also through marriage that God's rule is brought to earth. God doesn't end creation by creating a centralized government through which humans can now rule and subdue and have dominion. He creates marriage, God's most basic unit of rule into the world is through a husband and wife who establish a God-fearing home. And that home is to be a garden where God makes his home where God is worshipped, which is to be an outpost of Eden, this well-watered garden whose spring never fails. There's one little detail that I want to end with. Because how did God go about creating the grand finale of creation? Well, it says, Adam went into a deep sleep. And our modern ears just think, well, God needs to knock Adam out before he performs this big surgery. <laughs> but that's not how the ancients understood this. The ancients understood deep sleep as death. Even in the days of Jesus, death is referred to as just sleeping. So in many of the rabbinical commentaries, they say that for God to fashion woman, this bride out of Adam, Adam had to sleep. Adam had to die. And just think about what this means. It means that the first husband had to lay down his life so that his wife might live. And every, every husband since Adam has been called to this. But the New Testament speaks of Jesus as being the second Adam. 
And it speaks of the church as being his bride. And just as Adam had to go into a deep sleep for God to fashion his bride, so with Jesus, through Jesus' death, the church was born. Just think about that. Christ is the ultimate, the ultimate husband. And the church is the bride of Christ. And this is why Paul will say, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Because Jesus is the bridegroom. And through his death, as Paul says, we become his bride. And not just his bride, but stunningly glorious without stain, blemish, or defect. The church now is God's sacred institution, the bride of God, the garden of God, where God is worshipped. And we now, as the church, are to be this outpost of Eden, the garden of God to the world. In closing, as God's garden, let me just sum up Genesis 1 and 2. This will save me a lot of emails this week. Number one, we at Crossroads have the highest view of God as creator, ruler, sovereign king of the universe, yet imminent, near, among us, in us. Why? Because he loves us. At Crossroads, we have a high view of humanity. We see the God-invested dignity in every single person, irrespective of culture, race, or status. At Crossroads, we have a high view of gender. Gender is God's idea, that God created us male and female, that God purposed it, that God established it to reflect his glory. We at Crossroads have a high view of marriage as God ordained it between a man and a woman. Marriage is not about me then and my happiness. In fact, the moment it becomes that is the moment marriage is doomed. The purpose of marriage is to preach Christ and to reenact the gospel. Or like the psalm says, it's husband and wife together saying, come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This church has a very high view of singleness. Jesus was single, Paul was single. And it's together as men and women that we're going to reflect the fullness of who God is, whether we're single we're married in this community. And this must be a place of oneness where people can be naked and unashamed. We are the garden. We're the priests. And it's our job to protect this garden. And so God, we just right now ask for your Holy Spirit that your spirit would fill us, be among us, God, that we would, your spirit, give us eyes, open the eyes of our heart, God, to just see your, your revelation, your word clearly as it is. Your spirit would guide us and give us courage to walk this out. God, fill our hearts with love. For you, God, so love the world, God. Give us your heart for your world. God, give us humility. God, may we never look down on anyone. God, may our eyes uh, look up. 
God, everyone that you've made is just that. They're creatures of your hands. They're creatures that your heart loves. Your heart is in everything that you've made. God, we want to partner with you. We want to join you in your mission to reclaim and to restore, to redeem, to reconcile, to repair and to resurrect a world that you love. God, may we not get in the way of that. Pray this in Jesus' name.